The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, July 10th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman served his country well. Then he served it so well, he was asked to serve no more. Removed from the White House in a clear act of political revenge, Vindman properly raised a red flag over Trump's improper conduct on a call with the president of Ukraine. Trump beat impeachment and removed the lieutenant colonel and also his twin brother, whose misdeed seems to have been that he shared DNA with Alexander. Here's how Chris Hayes on MSNBC put it. And now today, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman announced he's retiring from the army, citing bullying, intimidation and retaliation by President Trump. You know, call me perhaps harsh, cruel, judgmental, old fashioned, but bullying? There's something about complaining about bullying that if you're an army lieutenant colonel, doesn't sit well with me. Oh, don't get me wrong, Trump's a bully, but the job of a guy like Vindman is to stand up to bullying, no? Actually, I gotta say, that is too harsh. Upon reflection, I do think I know what's going on. Bullying, and that's a quote from Vindman's lawyer, I haven't heard him saying that, it's in the air, and it's an accurate charge, it's an unpresidential thing to do, and it strikes a lot of people, maybe more sensitive people than I, as a shameful misdeed. So if it's apt, why not tag Trump with a descriptor? If it draws sympathy, accurately so, I won't begrudge its use. But also, there's this. I think Trump is a wannabe bully. He tries to bully. But my own sense is that while he's a mean, blustery jerk, he mostly is not a successful bully. When he's opposed by anyone with enough standing, competence, and backbone, to do something about him. Now, you'd think that as president, there'd be few in that position, but he's so bad at his job and at bullying that many, many have. So I guess that's my issue. Not disagreeing that Vindman was bullied, not saying anything other than Trump tries to bully. I'm not saying that. But it's more that I'm wishing that on the way out, Vindman didn't give Trump even the partial satisfaction of thinking his bully tactics worked. On the show today, A New York Education Council meeting goes cuckoo bananas. If you heard about it before, I actually will try to talk about it in a new light. But first, Usain Bolt has traversed 100 meters in less time, 9.58 seconds, than anyone ever has run that length. His 9.63 Olympic time is a record. His Lightning Bolt nickname is more than appropriate. It is damn awesome. You know, I was there in the crowd covering the 2012 Olympics when he won gold. In the 100 meters, it was the most exciting 10 seconds of sports I have ever witnessed, and I'm a Mets fan. The Mets, no Mets, are included in the new Apple series, The Greatness Code, but Tom Brady is, Katie Ledecky, LeBron James, they are, as is my next guest, Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt held the title, the world's fastest man, longer than any other man, a winner of three golds in three straight games, Beijing, London, and Rio, though it now stands at eight since one of his teammates in one of the medleys was disqualified years later. Usain Bolt is now part of a series for Apple TV called The Greatness Code. It is a co-production of The Interrupted, which is LeBron James and Maverick Carter shop, and Gotham Chopra, who's the director. Him and Tom Brady have another shop, and they do these excellent and visually stunning small documentaries about athletic greats 
there really is no greater in his sport than Usain Bolt, who joins me now. Thanks for coming on, Usain. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so first question, Segway Scooter's discontinued production of the Segway. In 2005, a Segway Scooter bowled you over at the World Championships. Are you happy about Segway getting out of the scooter business? <laughs> no, I did, I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that. But we're in the scooter business now, so... You are, aren't you? <laughs> did you? When you got hit by that Segway, did you say, I could do this better? Was that what was going through your mind? That's not what I was thinking at that time. <laughs> uh, so... Let's start where you started, the start of the race. You, compared to the others at the elite level, would always start a little slowly. Was that because of your size? You're so much taller, you essentially took more time to unfold? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, it's definitely because of um, how tall I am. And a lot of people said it, it, it wouldn't work for me because I would never be a good 100-meter runner just because of my height. Right, so you were, the, you were the tallest one ever who, who achieved any sort of success. The fact that you are so much taller, do you think your height actually helped you? Yeah, I, I definitely do think so. You know what I mean? Um, the, the only setback I had was my start. But once I get going, my height does help me because my legs are longer, so I cover more ground um, than the shorter people. Right, and by shorter people, we mean sometimes people who are six feet tall. Well, yeah. <laughs> Does So when you were training, did you have to, I, I know about, and you talk about it in the documentary, you're extremely dedicated, but was there a time where you and your training team had to say, look, you're never going to be an elite starter. All we can do is try to make you the best you can be, but don't kill yourself trying to, you know, match some of your teammates or some of the others on the world stage. Yeah, definitely. Um, my coach, my coach, Ben Mills, he tells me that all the time, even before championships. I remember 2012 Olympics. Um, I had lost to my, my teammate at the time, Johan Blake, uh, at our trials. And I, when we got to the Olympics, I was worried about my start. And he said to me, i never forget when I was going out for the 100 meters. And he said, listen, forget about your start. You will never be a great starter. Just forget about it and just go out there and execute. That's all you need to do. So he, he always reminds me that I'm never gonna be the greatest at starting, so I just need to do my best and the rest will come. So at that time, your coach's job was not to push you to try harder, it was almost to pull you back from, uh, to accept at least one limitation in your game. He, he just made sure I was good enough. He, he, you watch me start and he just refined my start to make sure I could get to top speed as quickly as possible. That was always a key thing when it comes to my start. If I, if I get it technically right, then I'll get to top speed quicker. So that was our only focus. It was never to react quickly. It was just to make sure we got out the blocks and we got it done right. In training, just I'm actually ignorant of this. Do you ever go at all out for 100? Do you ever set times that are comparable to the times, the, the legendary times of 958 or 963 that we all know? We do run hard, but we, you never really get to that because competition gives you that adrenaline and that extra edge. But we do do time trials and training and stuff like that. When you run um, in training, do you know when you, if, if I didn't put a clock on you, would you always know when you ran your fastest? And was it because you just know that technically you executed and that's the best you could do? 
Yeah, definitely. You can tell when you run fast in training. Uh, one thing my coach always praised me about is that I genuinely know. Say he tells us to run 15, I know the pace to run to run 15. He always, always said I'm very good at doing that. So I definitely know when I run fast from when it wasn't a good one. So what's it like to run? You, I know you measure in kilometers, but you're running essentially 28 miles an hour. Does it feel fast or does it feel more in your body that you're burning and churning? For me, 100 meters, it definitely feels fast. Uh, personally, 100 meters definitely feels fast. It feels, because we hit the ground so quick and I just continues going, it feels like you, I wouldn't say fly, but levitating sometimes because of how I run. I run with taller strides than other athletes. Right. At 28 miles an hour, can you think? Can you really make adjustments or see what your competitors are doing? Yeah, definitely. I, I tend, for me, I, I know every step of most of my 100 meters because I take note and I look around. Something that my coach hates, but it's been a part of me since I was running from a younger age. So I've seen um, clips, maybe you have too, LeBron James will be asked about a play, and his recall is stunning. He'll know where everyone on the court was. He just has that sort of awareness. Are you saying you have something similar to that exactly. in your sport? You know, and do you know where your competitors are stepping? Do you, can you actually like close your eyes and see that? In a race, because especially in the finals, for me, because I'm, I'm always starting slow, I'm always behind everybody at the start. So I tend to take note of where everybody is and where the danger is because I know who's probably going to be the next fastest. So I tend to take note of if they're in front or they're behind, but I can't see their legs. I'm not really looking at their legs. Um, I'm just checking where they are and telling myself, you know what, I need to go faster or I can back off or stuff like that. Do you think the 200 meters would be more popular if it didn't require a turn? I don't know. I don't know why it's not popular. <laughs> I can't say, but it's, it's, one, it's actually my favorite event. I think so, right? Because it has, I mean, I know the 100 is really fast and it's the world fastest man, but the 200 has a little more subtlety to it. Well, for me, the reason I like it is because um, I grew up on the 200. I've always, I was really, as you said, I was really bad at the start when I was younger. So I could never make a finals for the 100 meters. But the 200 for me was something that was always, I always win and it's always good. So over time, I got really good at 200 because I practiced so much running to run the curve. So it became a part of me, something that I really enjoy. <laughs> Do you think the curve is to your advantage? You're better at that than, your, than the competitors? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think just throughout the years and I've developed my technical aspect running a, a curve is very good. I've run so many 200 meters over the years and I've learned so much from my coach Glenn Mills that I think technical wise running the curve I get an advantage because I'm that good at doing it. In the documentary in the greatness code it's short it's six minutes it's really well done visually but they talk about Tyson Gay as a competitor uh, I have two questions about this. One is, did your competitors drive you or did the time drive you? My competitors. So if your competitors were a little less fast, might your world record be a little le less fast? 
It never, maybe, <laughs> maybe, because I live for competition. So I think maybe, you never know. It's hard to answer that, but maybe the possibility is there. <laughs> was it easier for you when your competitor was from another country like Tyson Gay versus Johan Blake, your countryman? No, for me, as long as you're a competitor, you're a competitor. I take you very seriously. Do you generally move quickly in routine, everyday tasks? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm actually very lazy. When I tell people that, they don't believe. I'm actually very, I'm a lazy person. What about just walking on the street? Do you have a fa- I know you have a long stride, but are you usually faster than the group or, or slower? I would say slower. I, I just run fast. Everything else I do at a normal pace, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. <laughs> And now I want to ask you about your name. It's a great name, Usain, but of course, Bolt. Bolt, without a nickname, means to move fast, which is amazing. But then you modify it with lightning, it becomes the fastest thing known to man. Now, about lightning bolt, what I was thinking of, it, it would be as if Michael Phelps' name was Michael Fish, and he used the nickname Swordfish, and then every time he won a race, he would do a sword gesture. So did you, were you calling yourself lightning bolt from an early age or is that something that, you know, you thought of later on? <laughs> I actually got that name when I went to, uh, I think it was Bahamas at the Curve Games. And that's where they named me lightning bolt because I was winning all the races. And the, the, the Jamaicans who were in Bahamas, they nicknamed me lightning bolt. And from then the name kind of stuck to me. And what about the gesture? Did you invent that? Yeah, I actually invented that. And the gesture we saw uh, in 2016 or the last time we saw you run, was that the earliest version of it or did you workshop that over the years? For me, it's always been the same pretty much. From 08 when we started out, that's the first time I did it. After I won uh, the 100 meters, I did it. And then it just became a part of me. I, and everybody knew me because of the pose and it just became something that people enjoy seeing. If you were in training for an Olympics, like the Olympians this year were, and then Olympics was, the Olympics were canceled, how much would that throw your training off? Well, it, it all determines to the coach, you know what I mean? The coach decides if we continue training or he'd probably give us like a month off or whatever and then start over again. But for me, I just go along with the coach. I, over the years, I've, I've always just believed in my coach, so I just work with what he says. Mm-hmm. It probably helps you to kind of surrender some of the mental aspect to him. Exactly. Yeah. Would, if there is an Olympics, but it's before an empty crowd, do you think that would make you slower? Will that make the competitors slower? I think the crowd helps, you know what I mean? It really helps for, the, for, for people to be there. So the time, I don't think the times will be as fast. It will still be competitive, but I don't think the times will be as fast. When you ran the record-setting 958, as you know, in the last, I'm not even going to say second, hundredth of a second, you look a little to your left. Do you think if you had just looked straight and leaned at the end, it could be, you know, a 955 or something? Yeah, it could have definitely been faster if I wasn't looking around. And that's one of the things I told you my coach always complains about. He's like, why do you need to look left and right? Just run straight. <laughs> but it's, it's been a part of me since I started running. It's something that I always do. Yeah, well, I guess it, it's easier for a coach to say that to the guy who comes in second. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if I, I think if I actually didn't do that, I would definitely run faster. Now that you are retired, how is your train? Your training has had to have gotten less intense, but are you training very differently, just working out privately? I work out 
when I start putting weight on. Like, I'll, I'll put weight on, then I'll work out. As soon as it goes, I'll stop. <laughs> so, because it's still hard, and it's something that I go, I don't need to be doing this. You know what I mean? So, because I've been training since I was, what, like, 12. I've always been just training, training. So, now I'm older, I just, I'm just, I just don't want to do anything. But I still want to look good, so I work out enough to look good. <laughs> In retirement, what do you do? How do you replace that competition that you lived on when you were an active athlete? For me, I'm, I, I don't do anything, you know what I mean? I just continue working with sponsors and everyone, but like when I watch soccer and stuff, I do miss it. Yeah. And, and I feel that energy and I see the celebrations and stuff like that. I do like, I do miss it, but I know the, the moment I step back on the track, I'm, I'm not gonna miss it. <laughs> so. I know it's just for a minute. Do you think when the next great sprinter comes along, you're going to be defensive of your time or you're going to say records were made to be broken? It's, it looks like it's a few years off, but what do you expect will happen? For me, it was never, it was never about fast times. You know what I mean? Uh, it, was de- it was about competition and winning and making my name. So for me... The, the, the Olympic medals mean a lot more to me than actually the fastest man in the world. That was always my aim to win back-to-back titles. I'm the only person to have won three Olympics back-to-back. And that, for me, is, is going to be harder to break than actually a time. When that last medal was taken away because they found the uh, doping result from nine years ago, what were your emotions or what are your emotions about that? For me, I, th- I think because it happened after... I actually won my last Olympics. It didn't affect me as much. You know what I mean? It, it felt bad to lose a, a, a medal, but it wasn't like, oh my God. You know what I mean? I, I feel like if it happened before the Olympics, then it would have been hard on me, but it happened after. So other athletes in the series, like LeBron and Tom Brady and Katie Ledecky and Alex Morgan, you know, I think of them, they do these great things like you did. But I wonder, as a great athlete, is there ever an athlete who does something that where you say, I can't believe it? Not from a physical perspective, but from a mental perspective, that you just marvel at another athlete's mentality? All the time. <laughs> for me, because um, I watch a lot of sports. And for me, I think Cristiano Ronaldo stands out for me because throughout the years to see where he, he has come from. And he, every team he has been in, he has dominated. And he has done so great things. And his work ethic and his mindset and everything, for me, is, is, it wows me to know that he works as hard as he does. I don't know if you, did you watch that Michael Jordan documentary that was on ESPN? Yes. One of the, it was great, it was interesting, but you know, a thesis was that you can't have that kind of greatness without being a little remorseless, without being maybe a little cruel and kicking the ass of the people around you. Do you buy that thesis? For me, I think everyone is different, you know what I mean? For me, I, I was just always focused on what I want, and that's, that's it. I was always chilled, nothing bothered me. I was just always just focused on being the best, you know what I mean? But everybody deals with things differently. For me, throughout my career, people always say, oh, I love to party. But partying for me helped me to achieve because that's the way I relax, you know what I mean? So for me, everybody is different.
Usain Bolt, the great sprinter, is one of the featured subjects of Apple TV's The Greatness Code. Thanks so much. Good talking to you, Usain. All right, no problem. Appreciate it. And now the spiel. I hate mobs. I hate mob mentalities. Mobs might be well-intentioned. The mob might have some real reasons for being passionate. But the mob always goes too far and gets it at least somewhat wrong. So since these are my principles, accuracy good, inaccuracy bad, conclusions drawn from groupthink bad, need to question those, I will apply those principles to a recent contretemps that might have flitted across your consciousness. So a member of the New York City Community Education Council for Manhattan District 2 got quite upset at a fellow member of the New York City Community Education Council for Manhattan District 2. And this was after a stressful four-hour meeting over Zoom, which is like a 12-hour meeting in real life. Over the course of this meeting, council member Tom Rockledge, a white man, at a few different times held a friend's baby on his lap. The baby was black. And then Rockledge made a joking remark about integration. Now, Rockledge is a member of the voting bloc within this council that wants to continue the practice of having top students test into top schools. But the woman who got a lot of attention for harshly criticizing him is a member of the bloc who wants to eliminate all screening for performance because she and her side argue that it's the only way to undo the segregation that exists in the New York City schools. Black and brown students in the district do, in fact, attend schools with fewer parental resources than the top schools, the screened schools. Those schools are largely attended by white and Asian students. So that's some background. If you're worrying about the baby, don't worry, it comes up soon. It wasn't the substance, but the manner of the critique aimed at Rockledge that made headlines. And the headlines weren't about school screening. They were about racism. Here is a second of council member Robin Broshi screaming on a Zoom call. And I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm trying to illustrate to you that you think I'm a fuck, excuse me, you think I'm a social justice warrior and you think I'm being patronizing and I'm getting pressure for not being enough of an advocate. And I take that to heart and that hurts me. And I have to learn to make how to be a better white person. Robin Hood there expressed those and similar feelings throughout a follow-up meeting to the four-hour one where Tom held the baby, and she, Robin, was pilloried, mocked, screenshotted in an unattractive pose, and described in headlines like the following. Media Resource Council, white NYC ed councilwoman explodes at fellow council member for holding a black child. Is a white man holding a black child racism? Racist behavior for holding a black baby on his lap. SJW Karens accuse NY volunteer of racism, crazy woke, and anti-racism insanity on NY Education Council. Yasha Monk's new magazine, Persuasion, asks, is it racism for a white man to bounce a brown baby on his lap? Robin's outburst was played over and over and over again, often on YouTube shows that had Tom Rockledge as a guest. Tom did not disabuse the hosts of their worst interpretations. But the story, crazy story is... He was at an education council uh, meeting and <laughs> he's being asked to resign for having a black child in his lap more than one on more than one occasion. 
And the accusation is that he, he was using the black baby as a prop. But it sure seems, and we're all you're going to get to see it played out more, it sure seems that these people accusing him of racism are really using that these poor black children in this situation as a prop. T- take it away, Thomas. That's absolutely correct. But it's not. They were not objecting to the bouncing of the baby. They, they were not using the baby as a prop. They were objecting to something else. But you have to know that Tom was there with a brown child to make that something else understandable. And it was this joke that Tom made. My living room's integrated right now. The only way to understand what could have been grating about that comment is to know that Tom was there with his daughter, his daughter's friend who's black, and she had her younger brother over. That was the baby. That was the baby on Tom's knee multiple times. Now, why did the joke, let's think of it as a joke, why does it rankle so much? I mean, it could have been laughed off, right? I mean, teeth could have been gritted, eyes could have been rolled, in fact, they were. It's the context of the meeting, the context where Tom cracked wise about his integrated living room. And it's this, that the board, no exaggeration, for three hours discussed issues of exactly racial integration or related to racial integration. They were on display They were evoking great passions. Black parents, white parents were talking about it. Here is one parent, not a board member, just a citizen. And as an African-American woman, I support ending screen schools. Um, I am um, disappointed at how um, segregated these schools ended up um, becoming. Here, I'll play tape of the uh, first black man to speak up at the meeting. Also, just a parent in the district. Uh, My name is Robert Osborne. Uh, as a black person, I remain angered about the murder of George Floyd and so many African-American men and women by the police. But I've also been heartened by the fact that for the first time in my life, I feel like our society is questioning their assumptions and really listening with regard to the systemic racism of our policing. I've sat through many of these CEC meetings listening to calls for a district to keep screens as the basis of our admissions process. Now, let me tell you, as you hear that, what's going on on the screen. So it's a typical Google video screen. You see a dozen faces. You see Tom. Tom, however, is the only one who's futzing with his camera. In fact, during the entire meeting, Tom's the only one who in any way moves the camera or plays with visuals. So what Tom is doing now is he pans the camera during the 45 seconds this black man is talking to show his daughter and her black friend. And they wave at the camera. Why? I don't know. What's the effect? It distracts from the speaker. Tom's also the only one in the meeting to have a dry erase board. And he scrawls a message, a couple messages on the dry erase board. So... Here is Robin during the original meeting where she is introducing her resolution. Dismantling one piece. About screen schools. But dismantling one piece of that systemic racism, which is. So as she's introducing a resolution, here's what every other person in the meeting is doing. They're listening. They're looking straight into the camera. Some are nodding. Some are blank faced. They all seem to be listening. But here's what Tom is doing. He has taken out a magic marker just as she starts to talk and starts scrawling a message on the whiteboard behind him. What's it say? What's he's writing? Robin's talking, but he pulls focus. Then mid-statement, we see what Tom has written. It is that all co-sponsors of the resolution send their children to screened schools. Aha! It's an accusation, not against the content of the resolution or the wisdom of the resolution, but of the motivation of the sponsors of the resolution. Is it fair? Is it unfair? I don't know. I know that no one else on the council 
makes such points in this attention-grabbing way. The position, by the way, that everyone on this council has, it's unpaid. It takes hours and hours of time. All participants are just there to do what they see is right for their students, for students of the district. No one beside Tom is sloganeering or using whiteboards or detracting from anyone else as they make their points. The rest of them just speak like adults and then they vote. So after the whiteboard, after the talk of integrating schools, after the testimony of many members of the school board, by the way, after Tom not only writes his message on the board, but traces it to make sure that it's in bold, that's when he makes the crack about, I'm in an integrated living room. Then everyone waits a month. And in the next meeting, all hell breaks loose. And that's the meeting that you've seen, if you have, of clips and headlines about woke parents and SJWs and Karens. There, Tom takes umbrage that Robin could possibly have a problem with statements about her children being scrawled out on a whiteboard. Do you think that that's a Trump point that you drag my children into this conversation? Uh, I, I Where think my there's children a go to school? And I, your behavior. Excuse my behavior? I've oh, never, this is like the okay, most guys. outraged I've ever behaved at a meeting. I've only been polite. I've been too polite, Tom. I let you post whiteboards. I let you insult me and Eric and Sheena over and over again. You called You're out Emily's house at a meeting and I said truth. nothing. My failure was saying nothing. My failure was being too polite to people like you. What exactly was incorrect about what I wrote on the whiteboard, Robin? Tom, it can be both a fact and an attack. It can be a factual attack that's inappropriate for a volunteer community board that, by the way, has no power other than to make recommendations. And also, let me make this point that Tom's factually pointing out that Robin sends her kid to a screen school. Well, what if she didn't? I mean, then you could make the point that, you know, she doesn't send her kid to a screen school. And what she's arguing for is for unscreened schools to essentially get more resources. So she just wants to help her own kid. That's her motivation. So either way, you can make the charge of hypocrisy or you can make the charge of self-dealing. Probably better off is to not make a charge on a whiteboard. Not that productive. Now, it's time for me to tell you my personal connection to this very meeting, this very body. This is the community education board that encompasses my son's school. In this meeting, where members were arguing back and forth. Factually correct that my living room was integrated at the moment. Don't roll your eyes, Emily. Don't roll your eyes. I did roll your eyes. Yeah. I was watching in shock, but also with interest, because at times my son's middle school was brought up specifically. And his future was pretty much on the table. Well, it would be if this political body had any power. They don't. They could just make a recommendation. It gets ignored. Two or three months ago, I actually was a speaker in one of these meetings. I saw the resolution that I supported pass this council. And then I saw the New York chancellor ignore it. Furthermore, after that meeting, I texted Tom a few times, asked him about his positions and his votes. I also texted Robin, who a couple of years ago was a parent in the elementary school my son attended and a really good parent, like one of those, this school would be worse but for her parents. This gets complicated because I actually agree down the line with the stances that Tom is taking, meaning his policy positions are my policy positions. And on every issue that I know of where Tom and Robin disagree, Tom's position is the one I agree with, not Robin. 
Also, I chafe at Robin and some of her like-minded members constantly citing the white fragility author Robin D'Angelo. But I guess Robin's got to respect Robin's. Read white fragility. Read Ibram Kendi. It's not the most practical way to move a conversation forward. But when the conversation is, why am I a racist? How could you call me a racist? Robin gave the answer that she gave, the answer that you heard, the answer that I think it's fair for people to call a bit unhinged, an answer that many people have called unhinged. What she could have said is, well, Tom, why I said you conducted a racist act is that three hours into a four-hour meeting where several members of your community were on screen talking about the pain of segregation that still very much exists in our district, your one comment on the idea was to note that your home is personally integrated at that very moment, which we knew because we got to watch you cavort with that cute small brown kid very often. And by we got, I mean, not just me and not just everyone else here, but all the people, all the citizens who spoke up and all the people who didn't speak up because they don't want to spend four hours listening to your dismissiveness. So maybe that's why we all took a little bit of umbrage, that you didn't take what we took extremely seriously. You made a joke about it. Now, I, Mike, am not saying that that's what she should have said, because it's really hard when you're being challenged and interrupted by a guy who called out your kids via a whiteboard, who defeated your resolution, and who would go on to take a victory lap in social media about how he's the high-minded one and you're not. And you know, there really is a thing, it is true, about punishing females for their rage. It's female rage that gets screenshotted and mocked. And look at the screenshots in YouTube about this, you'll see what I mean. You know, I think if you cut together a version of that meeting where Robin was yelling and some of the other board members were yelling and you dubbed Robin's voice with, say, a subdued Patrick Stewart and her expressions were replaced by a serene-looking Meryl Streep, she probably wouldn't seem that bad. I mean, the, the transcript makes decent enough points. And Tom might not seem so brave. And it also might be more stark and shocking when Tom goes on sympathetic YouTube channels with hosts like Benjamin Boyce, and there he seems much less bound by the norms of civility within a meeting. Tom doesn't really pause in engaging in insults to fellow council members with whom he disagrees. These social justice warriors who come in from their Manhattan condos and say, no, 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 no. Even if you take the same test as everybody else, you are white adjacent. You are privileged somehow. And you don't deserve to be in those schools. And these are people coming from communist regimes who... (laughs) <laughs> went through all sorts of hoops to get here. And those are the people that they're blocking. Hmm. It's astounding. Yeah, it's absolutely infuriating. And as you say, cognitive dissonance or what we used to call hypocrisy is just oozing from the people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, useful critique. So Robin lost her cool. And Tom actually is right on the stances, or at least I agree with him. But also, let's really remember the mob doesn't always give you the fairest picture of what went on. You want to call Robin a Karen? I can't stop you from using that lady's name that has certainly been affixed to her. But if Robin's a Karen, isn't Tom a little bit of a dick? And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Alicia Montgomery. They would like to note that Usain Bolt's name compares well to Al Order, the discus thrower, 
if his name were Al Fling and he did that spinny, spinny throw motion whenever he discussed really well. The gist, Usain Bolt fun fact. Usain's middle name is Saint Leo. I asked Usain, which Saint Leo of the five Saint Leos is the one you're named after? And he did not know. Oompoo-dapoo-doopoo. Thanks for listening.